Hey guys, Frank here with a quick disclaimer about this episode uh, featuring Howard Kalen of the Turtles. Uh, it's a great episode. The audio is not ideal. Uh, we do our best to record people, but in this case, Howard could not get to a studio. We, we couldn't get anyone to him. He lives in Seattle, uh, and he's not mic so we were relying on Skype. So as I say, the audio is not the best, but the content is terrific. So stay with it. Here we go. This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre, once again recording at Nutmeg with our engineer Frank Ferderosa. Our guest this week is a singer, songwriter, musician, record producer, actor, author, and raconteur, and eyewitness to 50 years of rock and roll history. Sign him up. (laughs) As the lead singer of the best-selling 1960s pop rock group, The Turtles, he scored hits like It Ain't Me, Babe, Eleanor, She'd Rather Be With Me, You Showed Me, and of course, Happy Together. Named one of the top 50 songs of the 20th century, along with fellow turtle and future partner Mark Volman, he became a fixture in Frank Zappa's Mothers of Invention and later formed the successful musical comedy duo known as Flo and Eddie. In a career spanning six decades, he's written hit songs, produced albums, for fellow artists, provided voices for animated films, and appeared in TV shows like It's Gary Shandling's Show and feature films like 200 Motels and Get Crazy. He's also performed backup vocals for Bruce Springsteen, T-Rex, Duran Duran, The Ramones, Alice Cooper, Blondie, and John Lennon, and sang on hit records like Banga Gong and Hungry Heart, among others. His recent tell-all memoir is called Shell Shocked, My Life with the Turtles, Blow and Eddie and Frank Zappa, etc. Please welcome to the podcast a genuine rock and roll legend and a man who once got high with both Soupy Sales and Pookie. Yes. The multi-talented Howard Kalen. Thank you, Gilbert. That is the best obituary I have ever heard in my life. (laughs) Now the show's over. That was 20 minutes long. They they know everything about me. You don't have to ask me a fucking question. See you later. I'm I'm going to get an egg cream. (laughs) An egg cream. Love it. Now, so are all the turtles Jews... Uh, no, no, no. In fact, I think I'm the only guy that uh, that can claim to be chosen because the other guys are just out of the band. So uh, uh, I chose the other guy in the group that was half Jewish. I figured that one and a half Jews stand a much better chance in show business than none at all. <laughs> You know, and I figured that if it didn't work out, Kalen and Volman sound like uh, butchers anyway. We could open up a little store. 
and and have you ever had a Seder with Steely Dan? <laughs> no, I have never had that pleasure. But I have seen Donald Fagan wearing something that looked very yarmulke-like while shopping. <laughs> He was shopping. He was buying a suit at the men's warehouse, and I saw the yarmulke, and I hid. <laughs> it was a Thursday. It was a Thursday. He had no reason to be wearing that thing, you know, and shopping for schmatas at that stupid place. You know, we guarantee you. No, you don't. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> Were you asked, by the way, Howard, to sing Steely Dan? Uh, Back in the day? We did. We did. We sang on their demo. Uh, Donald hated his voice. Right. Uh, I don't know why. It's a fantastic rock, legendary voice. But, you know, you listen to yourself on your answering machine and you think you're an asshole. So I can understand it. But uh, they were so nervous about it uh, that they called Mark and I in to sing leads on a song called Everyone's Gone to the Movies oh, that sure. they later recut, and then they put our version on their box set or something. But we actually did. We got them their deal at uh, at ABC Dunhill, and, uh, and then we were out. I mean, they called. When the Turtles broke up, they actually called me uh, at, in 1970, the start of the year, and said, we're putting Steely Dan together as a real group. And we want to go out on the road. Would you like to sing with us? We heard the turtles just broke up. And I said, frankly, no, unless unless Mark can come with me. You know, we've been together since 15 years old and we've got a good thing going here. And I really don't want to screw it up by either doing your thing or playing the leads in hair or doing some other ridiculous thing that is going to just, you know, make our career you know, next stop, the pom-pom room. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to do that. And also at this age, I'm not that interested in furthering my career. So, you know, even on the, the tours that we do, if a manager type comes backstage with with Hollywood dreams and New York contracts, you know, we're the first people to go, get the fuck out of here. Managers, we're going to be 70 years old. The only thing I want you to manage is my funeral. Get the <laughs> hell out of here. You know, uh, no, no, I got to say, you know, for all the people that are out there on the road, like like we take every year on the Happy Together Tour, you know, the cow sills and the association and people from the, you know, 60s from our era from Laurel Canyon that actually grew up with us, you know, uh, we'd rather take people we know and love than people that are big and successful. So, you know, I'm going to spend three months in a bus with these idiots. I better like what I'm doing. I'm just saying that, that the older you get, the, uh, the, the fewer times you feel like going out and proving yourself. I don't, I don't need to do that. I don't really need to make the turtles, bigger than they were in fact we've spent the last 30 years making the turtles bigger than they were mm-hmm. in the grand scheme of things the turtles were not the mamas and the papas we were not the rolling stones you know so i think in in afterlife we've gained more respect by staying together uh than we ever had as a band you know even with zappa um, there's just something to being together for 52 years as a team uh, that you can't put words on. Uh, it's just a feeling of camaraderie that won't go away even though he lives in Nashville, 
I live in Seattle. It's not like it used to be when we were doing vocal sessions in L.A. We're grown-ups now. We've got, you know, families. Uh, Mark's on his third, and I'm on my fifth, God knows. Um, but, you know, uh, life has been rich and wonderful, and I think that's the idea and well worth paying for. So um, we're all doing good psychologically. The both of us are in the best shapes of our lives. Now we got to get to something important. You got stoned with soupy sales. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> More than once. More than once, but the first time, it was the shock of my life. Uh, I was in New York City visiting a friend of mine, a songwriter by the name of Steve Duboff. Um, and he, together with his friend Artie Kornfeld, who was one of the Woodstock founders, uh, wrote the Cow Sill song, The Rain, The Park, and Other Things, and... Uh, Pied Piper and a whole bunch of other hits and they wrote songs for us and uh, I got very very friendly with this guy Steve and went over to his apartment on the Upper West Side and was just hanging out and, and smoking which I found amazing in an apartment anyway because you know there was no towel by the door there was no West Coast you know burning incense in an ashtray or anything there wasn't any of that crap it was just he said, you know, it's an apartment. Everybody here gets high. Nobody cares. Okay, well, it was pretty early on in, in the, you know, the 60s. Or, and uh, I assumed he knew what he was talking about. We got onto a rant about uh, the shows we had watched growing up. And I had ex uh, ex exclaimed and explained it to him that my favorite show as a kid growing up was the Soupy Sales show, and I used to rush home from school every day and watch it. And when I was nine years old, I had these cards printed up. I was the president of the Soupy Sales fan club, and we'd all come over to my house after school and watch the show, and we'd be white fang and black all the characters, and I loved him, I loved him, I loved him. And, and uh, Steve Dubuff said, uh, hang on a minute. You know, and this is another just unbelievable life opportunity. He goes across the hall, he knocks on the door, and into our domicile walks Soupy Sales. I could not believe it. You know, I, I, I was beyond words. So was Mark. We both grew up watching Soupy. And, um, and then he said, oh, you guys, and started regaling us with show business stories and, and wonderful vaudeville days and Catskill comics and Borscht Belt shit. And I really just loved it. And uh, we were passing around some sort of a pipe. And he, he said, oh, oh, I'll be right back. And he came back with not only the best stash I had ever seen in my life, I do not know. <laughs> I don't know where he got it. I, you know, I know the guy was connected, but I mean, you know, just Rat Pack Ancillary does not entitle you to this incredible grade of opiated hash and wonderful skunky weed. And back in the day, it was, you know, stems and seeds usually, and this stuff was just primo. And we were out of our minds. And then he went back to the apartment and he brought out Pookie. Now, for those who don't remember Pookie, yeah, shame, on, shame you. on you. 
It yes. was a little, tiny little hand puppet that I think was a lion. A lion, yeah. yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he used to not only, hey, Burby, he you know, <laughs> wouldn't only interact with Soupy as a puppet, but but they would mime songs together. Fantastic, uh, like Spike Jones kind of songs <laughs> together. And uh, we would listen and I, we would wonder what the hell he was playing. Cocktails for two, stuff like that, you know, that was just before our time. Or, you know, Jonathan and Darlene Edwards, you know, uh, just off-key, wonderful uh, Paul Weston and Joe Stafford shit from back in the 50s and 60s and just really educational to a whole generation of kids who were never going to be exposed to that before. Anyway, Pookie was wonderful. Soupy was wonderful. When we had the chance to pick an opening act um, many years later when Flo and Eddie went out by ourselves as a, as a solo act, we chose Soupy Sales. And he opened for us many, many times in the uh, in the Northeast, in Florida, in the Midwest, we flew him out uh, to the Detroit area, where he was also really popular. And uh, I loved the man. I truly loved the man. And if you buy Soupy's autobiography, the first picture in it is Soupy and Mark and me. And it just, you know, warmed the cockles of my heart. You know, that's still very near and dear to me. He was a I can't say he was a close friend, but he was a man who was really, really kind of underrated as being one of the great comics, uh, truly yeah, yeah. one of the great off the top of his head, you know, put down comics way ahead of his time, you know, and had kids had the chance to hear what he was really thinking. Uh, he never would have been on the air at all. <laughs> Did you know Soupy Gilbert? Did you get to meet him? Oh, at the yeah. A couple of times. Yeah. yeah. And, and I what I remember about Soupy is he would come up to you and his conversation would be like the oldest, corniest, dumbest jokes you've ever heard. Fantastic. Yeah. That's, the, that's the shit that lays me out. When a 75-year-old guy tells you a joke you heard in second grade, that is the funniest thing in the world. <laughs> you have something to look forward to, Gil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he's saying it with all this conviction. I mean, you know, uh, shaggy dog stories that go on forever and ever. You just go, come on. Already. And then the punch is just, oh, God. You know? <laughs> Sometimes a groaner, but once in a while you get, you know, Friars Club quality. And you just go, this guy is a legend. He is a legend. And you got to remember that he ran with the Rat Pack for yes. Fox. Yeah, sure. You know, he was on Reprise Records. Frank signed him. He was that close to, you know, sitting next to Peter Lawford. And, and Although he, I never saw it. And and he hit Frank Sinatra with a pie. Yes, he did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, Frank volunteered. Oh, yes. I mean, yes. He didn't know. He would have been dead. It wasn't dead. like he ambushed him in an alley. No. Mia, Mia, stand oh. over here. Mia, hold him down. <laughs> now, can you sing uh, "Do the Mouse" uh, offhand? No, yeah. that wasn't that wasn't my big. You know, I could <laughs> sing you. Uh, uh, hippie has a pair of cha-cha hips. You okay. Know, but, but, no, I won't. Uh, it's a copywritten material. I, I'm already in so much trouble with copywritten material. <laughs> now, now the song that put the turtles on the map is "Happy Together." I guess. 
It was the larger map. Oh, yeah. the larger had, map. But it ain't me, babe. Yeah. Really put put them on the map. But yeah, so, but we were babies. We were such babies. And and but didn't everybody turn that down? Uh, in fact, they did. Oh, now I can see you both. Uh, in fact, they did. They turned it down. Um, hi, the Vogues turned it down. I mean, when the Vogues turn a song <laughs> down, you're the bottom of the barrel. I mean, nothing against those. I'm sure they're wonderful. Fuck them. I don't know. But everybody. Gary I Lewis, mean, too? Gary Lewis, too. Everybody that Bonner and Gordon later wrote songs for and had hit records with, those two guys couldn't sell Happy Together to save their lives. And by the time we got the demo, the one and only demo I ever heard of Happy Together, the vinyl you know, demonstration record of the song itself, um, it was horrible. I mean, it was horrible. It came across our desk along with 50 other, you know, like L.A. Greenwich songs and songs by, you know, great writers who thought, you know, we're going to write a, a hit for those turtle guys. And here, here it comes. Here we go. Um, but this demo sounded horrible. There was this guy singing uh, and playing guitar, acoustic guitar, and singing kind of tentatively off mic. And there was another guy singing the choruses who was smacking his knees. You know, I assumed he was the drummer of the band, but it was sort of hard to tell. And by the time they got to the chorus and that second guy was allowed to sing, it was, I can't see me loving. It was just, what the hell? <laughs> and it was scratchy, and the record had been played and played and played, and nobody heard it, and nobody heard it. And we listened to the thing. We took the record off, and all of us in the room said, play that again. Play that again. There's something mysterious about it, you know, and something that we liked all the way back to It Ain't Me, Babe, which which we kind of stole the concept of. I can't take credit for the concept of our version of It Ain't Me, Babe, or any of the songs that followed, including Happy Together. They all shared the same sort of thing, and that was um, to ape the zombies, sort of, who were a very big English group. At sure, the time. time of the season, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and uh, she's not there she's not particularly. There. Right. You know, because it, it had a very minor kind of verse it was really mysterious and then for the chorus they break into a major chord and it was triumphant it was really great well we kind of heard the same thing happening to happy together but with more of a kind of a, a march kind of a a 4-4 tempo and it wasn't really rock and roll it was really strange it was you can't dance to it you know, um, it, it's just kind of a listening song and, and a sing-along song. And uh, it turned into an anthem. And I swear to God, when we went into the studio after eight months of of preparing this, the shit on the road, we came out the first night before the thing was even finished. And we knew it was a number one record. It was the only time in our lives where we went, uh-oh, uh-oh. We better do this one right because this this deserves it. So even though the presentation was terrible, you heard something in it. You even from the get go. Yeah, yeah. I still do when I when I listen back to that early demo. There's there's a mystery and a magic and a once in a lifetime studio situation. 
uh, and you put on the mono version, the 45 record version of Happy Together, and I swear it sounds huge. It sounds bigger than the stereo version. It's just mm-hmm. how did they get all of those tracks onto a record? It's, it's good vibrations in, in a lot of ways. Uh, and it epitomized the West Coast sound, and it wound up epitomizing flower power and the summer of love. And it also has kept me alive for 52 years. <laughs> Imagine me and you, I do. I think about you day and night. It's only right to think about the girl you love and hold her tight. So happy together. If I should call you up, invest a dime, and you say you belong to me, lose my mind. Imagine how the world could be So very fine So happy together Turn to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast, but first a word from our sponsor. Back to the show. And you had a bunch of people you loved growing up on TV. Yeah, Ernie Kovacs. Yeah. I mean, you 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 say in the book, Howard, and we're, again we'll mention the name of the book, Shell Shocked, which is a terrific memoir. You said Howdy Doody and Kukla Friend and Ollie and Ernie Kovacs were your true friends. They were my only friends, man. My brother was three years younger than I was. My parents, uh, my dad was right out of World War II. We lived uh, in uh, Brooklyn in some sort of a bizarre housing setup, uh, the, the Linden houses. And it, was, uh, it wasn't a happy childhood, really. I mean, it was a lot of snow. And I remember being just shoved into snowsuits and thrown onto school buses and not really you know, getting it. I didn't get the whole social part of school at all. I just, I wanted to come home on that bus as soon as I could and turn on the television. And I stayed that way as a kid all through coming home and turning on American Bandstand. You know, I'm a child of the TV age and I loved everything about it. Like us. Yeah, from from Sky King to Dinah Shore. (laughs) Did you run home to watch Kate Smith? She was my favorite. To this day, <laughs> to this day, I don't know why. She's certainly she's not my physical type. Adele, I'm sorry, you're not in the running for my, for my sixth wife. Um, but I, I, I was really attracted to I don't know the, the voice or the production of the show or something. But every day she would sing her theme song, which was. When the moon comes over the mountain. And it was just, what the hell, man? What the hell? And it was, you know, nothing a kid would like at all. Most adults would shun it. But uh, but I was drawn to it. You know, she was like a friend to me. And everything that followed, uh, including Soupy, they were, they were my friends. But in the early days, yeah, before that, Kukla Friend and Ollie, we had a, we had a six-inch round television set when I was growing up, and it was the only one in the entire neighborhood. The console was the size of Big Blue, and uh, and it had this tiny little screen, in it, and all the neighbors would come over to watch 
Kate Smith or to watch uh, Betty White Life with Elizabeth wow. or something. You know, I'm, I'm dating myself. That's and a good I reference. Only, I was only like five or six years old at the time, but it, it made such an impression on me that uh, since my real world in Utica, New York, later as a kid, was so dark and gray, uh, that those were the friends I chose. Those TV friends uh, from, you know, the big circus and all those they were a lot hipper than anybody I knew at school or my teachers or my parents. So screw all of them. I would eat my food in front of the TV. I still do. And, uh, <laughs> and, and get into my fantasy world, which I still do. I prefer that to the real life around me, you know, because the rest of my time I spend watching MSNBC and that can be depressing, you know. Okay, we're going to take a quick moment, and we're going to talk about one of our sponsors. The Mysterious Secrets of Uncle Bertie's Botanarium is back for Season 2. Jermaine Clemen from Flight of the Concords returns as Lord Joseph Banks with all new adventures beginning February 1st. In this new season, we rejoin the crew of the Fortitude on their quest to find the source of all pleasure in the world. Called one of the best scripted podcasts by the AV Club, Uncle Bertie's is a hilarious comedy adventure in the tradition of Monty Python. Find out more and hear an episode for free at UncleBertie.com. That's UncleBertie.com. And now back to the show. Before I forget, among the people you were a big fan of was Arthur Godfrey. Yeah, another <laughs> one I can't explain. I can't explain <laughs> it. But I can tell you when Steve met Edie, I can tell you what song Julius LaRosa sang on any wow. given day. Julius LaRosa. And, uh, and Arthur Godfrey, who was probably a nightmare. I mean, thinking back, the guy was some sort of a Trumpish diva with a uke, you know, <laughs> and, and he was playing songs that, that was just unbelievable. I remember, you know, uh, he would start every show with the same greeting and it, it almost drove me insane. Uh, it was kind of like early Matthew McConaughey, but instead of, <laughs> instead of all right, all right, all right, he would go, how are you? How are you? How are you? I couldn't believe anybody had the balls and to do that. Arthur Godfrey, I don't know if you ever found this out on your own, vicious anti-Semite. I was just going to ask that. Yeah. He's famous oh, for it. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, he reminded me of a sort of a link letter type of a, you know, <laughs> right-wing fascist. Yeah. 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 Right-wing Jew that. hater. <laughs> Yeah, sure. And I can go, see that. Huh, huh, huh. Yeah. How are you? Yeah. How are you? I hate yeah. the Jews. <laughs> oh, oh, I voted for Hitler. <laughs> you know, another guy from that era who drove me equally nuts. My mother used to listen to him every day was Don McNeil and the Breakfast Club. Oh, out of Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember that? Uh, once a show, this moron who couldn't sing or act or dance or anything, you know, he would just introduce his cadre of comrades who were less talented than the East Coast people, but 
something for the Midwest people to grab onto in central time. Um, so uh, once a show, he would say, all right, everybody get up and march around the breakfast table. And the entire audience, if you watched it on TV, he was also on radio, uh, everybody got up and left their seats. And it was like musical chairs with 250 fat blue haired women all marching around the breakfast table like the music was going to stop and they would steal somebody else's eggs, you know, but it wasn't, it wasn't like that. It was just a happy kind of a morning. Let's get up and exercise because you're in walkers, you're rolling, you know, it's not good a lot. I think Ron Liebman and Jessica Walter serenaded us with one of the theme songs from the breakfast club. Yes. I think that was what they, yeah, they were, Ron Liebman was here and Jessica Walter and they, they, uh, they, 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 uh, treated us to, I think it was, (laughs) if I'm not mistaken, it was Don McNeil's breakfast club. That's, Fantastic. Yeah, we'll we'll send you the clip. <laughs> oh, that's I would really appreciate that. I yeah. would love that. Oh, I would love that. Tell us about your trip. I maybe it was your first trip to England. Ooh, you got a minute? <laughs> oh, there's so much good stuff in the book on that. Okay, I can I can sum this up pretty pretty briefly. Um, this is in 1967. Uh, Happy Together had already been a number one record in America. We uh, put out a record called She'd Rather Be With Me as the follow-up. And uh, we should first, say we should point out, too, that Happy Together knocked uh, Penny Lane out of the number one position on yeah, the, on the didn't, charts. Didn't want to brag. Didn't want to brag. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> uh, but it's hanging on the wall. So, you know, we love it. We love it. Um, anyway, we were working on our second record. And the first thing we saw was a review from New Musical Express, the week before we were about to go to London for the first time, we were so excited. We wanted to be Beatles so bad that we named ourselves Turtles, T-L-E-S, ending, animal name, small label. People thought we were British for a long time. So we really emulated these guys and wanted to be them very, very badly. Well, uh, our first knock was when a Blind Date uh, a column in New Musical Express, one of their music papers, had Lulu, the singer Lulu, to serve with love, uh, do a blind date and played her uh, She'd Rather Be With Me sight unseen. And she recognized who it was instantly and went, oh, those are those turtle guys from America, aren't they? Oh, too bad. I expected so much more than this. You know, and it was just a knock, and it was it felt really bad. This by Lulu. Yeah, Lulu, who the hell gives a shit what Lulu thinks? She had one song, maybe two. Yeah, she was a short little squat nugget, and nobody cared about her anyway. She she, she had no neck, you know. So I, I couldn't take her seriously. I still don't take her seriously. Nor the songs that she recorded, to be honest with you. But anyway, it was depressing. Uh, we went over to England. Uh, we didn't really know what to expect. We wanted to meet our idols. Um, the first night we were there, in fact, before we had even unpacked our suitcases, I had a message in my hotel room. Graham Nash had called. We had met the Hollies when they were touring America, so he knew we were coming to town. He said, come on over. We said, well, we haven't even unpacked. He said, what the fuck difference does that make? Come on over. So we went over there to his flat, which was very Tony. He's a very, very, you know, cultured individual still. And um, 
He said that after a few rounds of passing the hookah around, Donovan, Donovan was there. He was sitting cross-legged on an Indian rug, smoking a fucking hookah. This couldn't have been made up. It was, it was unbelievable. It was everything I dreamed England would be. I'm sitting there with these two stars, and these. Now, now Graham says, "You want to hear something?" Sure. We figure it's the Hollies' new record. We're into them. Puts it on. It turns out to be um, the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper album, which hadn't come out yet. And we heard it for the first time under those conditions, and our minds were suitably blown. And he said, uh, you want to meet him? What? So we got into a taxi. We went to this club called the Speakeasy, an all-night little pipe club. Uh, and on the way in, we bumped into the Rolling Stones and all these other people that we were to see later on in our careers. And uh, uh did eventually run into or got led by uh, the Beatles table. It was kind of like meeting the Queen. We filed by very respectfully, one at a time. We shook all of their hands. Uh, you know, Paul said, oh, a lovely bit of the la-la-la stuff on that Happy Together song. That's really great. You know, that really was fantastic. And actually, there was room. He indicated, sit down next to me. I sat down next to Paul. We started singing you know, Lottie, Miss Claudia, and all these great old American rock songs are having the time of my life. I swear to God, I was <laughs> in fucking heaven. Uh, <laughs> and then our idiot rhythm player, I think I can say that with impunity, because um, I hate the guy, uh, uh, went up uh, to John Lennon to shake his hand. The guy was wearing a three-piece mohair suit the same suit he had worn on the plane because we went there that quickly. Uh, he had a, a kind of a Nero-ish uh, shag haircut. He was a skinny guy. He was trying to look all mod. And Lennon said, oh, you're lovely, aren't you? You're a lovely piece of work. What the hell is your name? And he said, well, Jim Tucker. And Lennon comes back and goes, Tucker? Tucker? They call you Tucko? Tucko, I can have quite a bit of fun with that name. Let's see. Tucko, Tucko. And he started rhyming. Well, by the time he got to fucko, Jim was getting a little pissed. And uh, there was nothing he could do about it. John was his idol. And he just kept going. Uh, you give rhythm players a bad name. You know, what did you tell your barber? You wanted a beetle cut? You know, trade in that suit, man. I mean, you know, the moths are flying into my drink. You know, stuff like that. And it was just hurtful and harmful. And uh, at some point, Jim Tucker, the rhythm player, said, you know, you're an ass, man. I'm really sorry I met you. And Lennon said, you never did, son. You never did. And that was it. Jim Tucker turned around. He walked out of the club. He got on a plane. He went home. He never played music again. He quit the group, and uh, uh, we were never a six-piece band again after that. We stayed five pieces. And uh, I stayed in the club, and Brian Jones introduced me to Jimi Hendrix, and I ate dinner with Jimi Hendrix, and he got me even higher than I was then, and I threw up all over his red velvets. <laughs> a spinach omelet, I believe. A spinach omelet after six cognacs and incredible hash and I, I i couldn't handle it i i couldn't handle it maybe it was the excitement of the night 
But I woke up in my hotel room the next day, and no one to this day has ever told me how I got there. Wow. And, no idea. and you said Mr. Cool himself, Jimi Hendrix, totally lost his cool when you threw up on him. Well, what are you going to yeah. do? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even if you're, you know, Gandhi, you're going you're gonna to freak if your only loincloth has been spewed <laughs> So what uh, did he start yelling? Well, it was pretty, you know, he first thing he did was stand up. You know, we were in a booth, so we didn't have the drama of throwing his chair over. But he stood up quickly and just went, what the fuck, man? What the fuck? What are you doing to me, man? What are you? Everybody was looking. Everybody was standing up. Waiters were coming over to mop the shit off of his suit. But he was, I can't wear this ever again. I can't wear this ever again. It was like a custom. I read, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> but he did come back to see us. I didn't really add this to the book, I think. I don't remember. But he did come back to see us that weekend uh, when we performed at that very club. And he was very complimentary. And he acted like the night hadn't happened at all. And, uh. That's why I didn't put it in the book, because it's anticlimactic, and it puts me to sleep. But you did make a movie out of it called uh, My Dinner with Jimmy. True that. True yeah. that. It, it was a 30-minute a, a movie uh, that was just made about the dinner itself. Uh, it was when Rhino was still part of Warner Brothers, and those guys paid for it. Uh, we, we gave it to Warners, and they said, yeah, this is great. What are we going to do with a 30-minute movie? And uh, the producers, Harold Bronson uh, and Richard Foose said, well, um, we made it for Sundance. We made it as a festival film. And Warner Brothers said, we'll make it longer. And then it's a festival film. So I had to go in and write another hour of script, <laughs> right. uh, which is why it goes all the way back to the early days at the Whiskey A Go-Go and Jim Morrison mm -hmm. and uh, the draft board and all the other things that I had to sort of throw in there that are explained in the book in a little more depth. Yeah. But, um, and and the, but, the, the kid from uh, from Kramer versus Kramer, Justin Henry, grown up, played played you. Which the, is youngest, the youngest <laughs> Oscar nominee. How about that, Gil? Oh, geez. And our old friend Taylor Negron is in it, too. Oh, Wow. I love Taylor. Yes, so the you can man. imagine you can imagine how cool it is for me to be on the road with Chuck. Oh right, Chuck Negron, Three Dog Night. You know, yeah, Three Dog Night. So we we've taken him now. This, this summer will be the third or fourth tour that we've done with Chuck. We we pick the people on the Happy Together tours that we do every summer based on how well we get along with them, not how big they were on the charts. I really don't care. You know, if we can get along with them on a bus, which is like a sub uh, for three fucking months, that's well worth it to me to have someone I can tell stories to and laugh about and with and not be uptight and not be a damn prima donna because it doesn't suit you when you're 70 years old and you think you're, you know, Celine Dion. It just doesn't work. And when I hear that story, though, with John Lennon, I don't know. He comes across like a scumbag. Yeah, you could say that. And apropos of that, many years later in the Mothers of Invention, um, when we were playing at the Fillmore East in New York City, 
John and Yoko sat in with us and improvised a song that we had sort of thrown together the afternoon before called Scumbag, uh, where John just repeated scumbag, 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 scumbag. It was, you know, kind of a Yoko-influenced thing. I guess that was art. But I decided, uh, or Frank decided, or somebody decided at the time, that's kind of not enough for a song, John. So I added lyrics to it, and it was just, you know, it was stupid. Uh, but I was listing things that you could put in your scumbag. And uh, it was recorded live at the Fillmore, and it came out on two separate albums. On the Mothers of Invention album, you hear all the words, you hear the, the mix as Frank intended it to be, and um, I'm credited. It's, it's amazing to see Lennon, Zappa, Halen as writers of anything. <laughs> That's just <laughs> nuts. Well, as far but, as Jim Tucker is concerned, didn't he apologize to, to you, when you many years later and you said the, the yeah. apology would be better, uh, uh, Jim would be better served by the apology? Uh, I don't even know if I was that magnanimous about it. I, I nodded my head, certainly. I remembered the incident, but uh, it hadn't harmed me. Uh, I'm glad it stuck with him, though. I'm glad he remembered he was a dick. But he was continuing to be a dick because that very song, Scumbag, was released on the John Lennon Sometime in New York City album. He took out the lead vocals. He didn't have a cover for that record, so he used the Fillmore East cover, scratched out like lead in front of vocals, put himself in the credits, uh, and released the thing um, without vocals on it at all. You can hear me sort of screaming in the back. Uh, but he called it Scumbag, and he credited it to Lennon. Lennon, oh no, period. Um, so Frank needless to say, was pissed off. He also took other pieces from that very show, that very encore that we were doing, uh, renamed them, even though they were famous Frank Zappa compositions like Lumpy Gravy and King Kong and stuff. He called it something like, you know, Walking the Dog or uh, and wrote it himself, Lennon, and published it and put it on the album. And Frank just said, no. Here it is from 17 years ago. I've been playing it for 17 years, and it's not a jam. The band knows it by rote, and uh, so he sued him, and he won. And uh, there was bad blood between Lennon and Zappa uh, till the end. Didn't know that. That's interesting. Let, let's go back just a little bit, too, because we just we talked about Happy Together. But, you know, let's talk about you meeting Mark for the first time, because you guys were classmates. You were the Crossfires, yeah. you were the Night Riders before you became the Turtles, and Mark, came, what, came up and introduced himself to you and said he wanted to audition for the band? Exactly. We had played a dance, a sports night, they used to call it at our school. Um, and we were a, a little four-piece group called the Night Riders. I was the sax player. I wasn't very good. Uh, but I had gotten a phone call from this guy the first semester I was in school asking me to join a rock and roll band. I was really a clarinet player, but I borrowed a sax. I figured, what the hell, close enough. And uh, I honked my way through the first band, which was called the Night Riders. So Mark Volman went to see us play a dance at the high school. 
and came up to me at lunch the next day. I didn't really know who he was, except he was also in choir with me, so I knew he could sort of sing. And uh, he was really funny. He was class clown. And he said, hey, uh, I'd like to join your group. I said, that'd be great. What is it that you do exactly? And he said, nothing. (laughs) That's great, man. You, You fit right in with the rest of us. None of us do anything either. But we did know that he had like a following, you know, he, he was really the school clown and uh, everybody kind of watched him as if he were our own little Jonah Hill, you know, so he had that going for him. And we figured that would pull in enough people from the surf community. We lived like half a mile from the beach um, to make it worthwhile putting him in the band, even as a tambourine player. When, uh, but, when did, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Howard. I just wanted to ask you, when did it occur to you? Because this is intriguing in the book. You talk about how you guys borrowed from Martin and Lewis and, and Kaylee Smith and, and Louis Prima. But when did this idea that you would be the straight man and, and Mark would, would kind of do, do the funny, when did that even occur to you? When we first shook hands. Uh, <clears throat> it made perfect sense to me. I mean, uh, I couldn't think of a team that didn't have a straight man and a clown. And since Mark was so good at being the straight man and our timing was so good together, it was so natural. uh, It was obvious that I was going to be Keely, which I didn't mind at all. I really, really enjoyed that whole attitude. They were great. You know, and and the semi hostility they had going on stage, it was sort of cute knowing they were married or best friends or whatever that we had going. We could parallel to theirs. So that's what we did. It it was a natural thing. You know, when the guy next to you is spinning tambourines and they're falling into the audience and scarring the people in the first row, you know, you got to let that guy do it because he's obviously, you know, the visual focus of, of what you're doing on stage. And I was perfectly content to stand there uh, before I was even hand holding the mic and just being the voice of the band. I wanted to be the voice of the band. That's all I ever wanted to be. When I walked out of college and my parents said, what are you doing at home? I said, I, I want to be in the band. And they thought I was the biggest idiot in the world. And then um, <laughs> six months later, It Ain't Me Babe came out, and I bought them a trip to Hawaii and a color TV set, and they loved me ever since there's a nice story in the book of you hearing it ain't me babe on the on the radio but you guys were at a gig and you were sitting in the car and you heard it for the first time it's a, a little it's a little like that scene in the tom hanks movie that thing you do where they first yeah. where they oh, first, yes, where they yes. first hear their record on the radio it was very touching that it really happened exactly i love that movie yeah uh, we do for too that, for that very reason because it was so true to life you know it, it wasn't the glamour of almost famous it was more spinal tappy to me. It was more real, mm-hmm. more realistic. And that, that kind of stuff uh, happened all the time. I mean, when you were in a band, uh, everybody went through the same things. That's why spinal tap hits home for so many groups. Um, everybody has been through that stuff. Everybody. And, and you said, uh, not unlike a lot of rock stars, you had a lot of girls over the years. Yeah, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta understand, Gilbert. Um, I had a very stunted social life. 
I mean, truly, uh, in high school, I was, when you look like a potato, um, <laughs> or Neil Sedaka, pick one, um, <laughs> you are not going to get laid in high school. You're just not. So I palled around with, you know, people in the band, uh, you know, people in the audio visual. I was a, a dweeb pretty much. You know, I went to prom with a beautiful girl, but that was only because her sister, who I really loved, had a boyfriend. So, you know, it was not a big social situation until I picked up a saxophone and had a business card and was in a band. And then all of a sudden, funny things started happening to me. Girls would be backstage and want to ride home and stuff. And uh, I was... Uh, 15, 16, and just realizing that even a potato could get laid under the right circumstances, you know. So there were lots of little fingerlings along the way, um, I think. And uh, I, Fingerlings. I, well, <laughs> Staying with the potato metaphor. <laughs> I thought I would. Sorry. Um, it works. That, that wasn't meant to be a Trump kind of a reference. No, I understand. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, you know, I, perhaps I know I definitely abused it. I abused it as we all did. And there were nights on the road when there were no shit lines of girls. And it was pretty damned. I was going to say horrible. But the word that comes to mind is spectacular. Um, I don't regret a single day of the 60s, 70s, and even early 80s when I was being so promiscuous before the bad shit happened, uh, before everybody needed to be aware of, you know, what they were doing and with whom. Uh, the free love era was me. I mean, I am still that hippie guy. I am still the guy who can reach over with one of these and not feel... He's holding a joint. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, the size of my arm. What is it about music that gets you pussy? Because <laughs> um, we in comedy I, don't know. No. <laughs> no. No, 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 no. You get your groupies. I see the groupies. They're basically the same. I mean, the people that you meet uh, at the improv at the bar are not unlike the people that are waiting, you know, to meet you backstage with the VIP passes or the tribal chicks. You know, with their VIP passes going, oh, I'm Silver Cloud. Nice to meet you. You know, okay. But 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 the whole, I think it's just having the lights on you. I think it's just being the focus of anybody's thoughts for more than six seconds. If you can do better than a vine, uh, you've captured the intelligence of at least the millennials. So we've got that going for us. Uh, they've heard our shit growing up all their lives. Uh, so have their parents. And in many cases, so have their parents. Let, let's talk just a little bit, too. And we're, we're, we're jumping all over the place. We don't go in order here, Howard. Jump, baby. When the when the uh, when the when you when Happy Together was a was a smash and the record company was busting your balls and they kept saying, give us another Happy Together and another Happy Together. You kind of wrote Eleanor a little bit as a as a. What, as a as a protest, it was as, a, as an fu. A, it was a spiteful, evil song that I wrote <laughs> to show those motherfuckers that happy together just because you had a happy together didn't mean anything. That wasn't the point. 
it was the record, it wasn't the song. So if they want a song that was as stupid as Happy Together was, I figured I could do that for them. It was a very simple thing to do. Every time Happy Together went up chord-wise, I took my chords down. And every time, you know, I wanted to still follow the pattern of the zombies. Same pattern that I'd followed in Happy Together and even It Ain't Me, Babe. A minor soft verse and a strong pounding chorus. Uh, so Eleanor was happy together through a funny mirror. And I wanted to make sure that the lyrics were so teenaged and cliche and trite and offensive that the record company would go, all right, smart ass, we get it. We'll try to find you something that makes you sound like an adult. Uh, so we recorded the thing as a joke and sent them the demo from Chicago where we were staying. and. They didn't think it was a joke. Uh, they said, oh, my God, this song's fantastic. Get to L.A. quick so you can record it. What? What are you talking about? you got to record this song, I swear to God. So we went in and recorded this song. Um, it sounded good, but we just thought the lyrics are going to keep it way off the charts, way off the charts. They're so stupid. Uh, they were meant to be so inane. And uh, we hoped that people at least would get the joke. I don't think a lot of people did get the joke. Uh, when you're singing lyric like Pride and Joy, etc., or Your Folks Hate Me, yeah. or things like that that are obviously so, you know, Herman's Hermits you know, at the age of 15. Well, my, um, my favorite lyric in that song is, I really think you're groovy. Let's go out to a movie. That's great. <laughs> and, and as a kid, when I loved that song, I had no idea that it was that it was written as a kind of a as a joke. That verse was written on a Cantor's napkin. Wow. At Cantor's in L.A. Yeah. Wow. Cantor's Deli. Yeah. Yeah. They said, Where, "Where's the second verse? I don't have a second verse. Write a second verse." Okay, give me a minute. I'll write a second verse. We went to Cantor's. I had an egg cream and a corned beef, and I wrote over. <laughs> I really think you're groovy. Let's go out to a movie. What do you say now, Eleanor? Can we? They'll turn the lights way down low. Maybe we won't watch the show. I think I love you. Speaking of lyrics and happy together, you, you threw in How Is The Weather because where, where, where did that come from? Was that an ad lib? Was it on the demo? Uh, in fact, I had heard Gary, uh, Alan, Alan Gordon, the other writer of the song, sing that line while Gary was going out. He was like across the room and he sang that one time. And I went, that's got to be on the record. That's just too weird. Uh, so I put it on the record thinking they were going to, this was the first take happy together was my first take vocally. 
So I, I was playing around thinking that, all right, they've got the mic settings now. Let's start going for the takes. And I went into the uh, control room and they said, we got it. And they said, what do you mean you got it? You know, I expected to be there for four hours getting this <laughs> vocal right. I was there for two minutes and 48 seconds and you're telling me it's done. Listen to it back. Well, okay. It sounds okay. Yeah, it sounds okay. Go home. So I did. Uh, and, uh, and the next time I heard it, I, you know, I, I knew, and we all did for the only time in our career, we've got a number one record. We've got a number one record. What the hell, man? Uh, we knew it and we had no reason to believe it. We were on this mob related, tiny little label in LA, um, that really had no business buying its way onto any chart and yet, uh, happy together, legitimately and illegitimately because it was bootlegged everywhere uh sold um all over the world and uh, kind of reinvented us that was our second coming so to speak and we had a run of hits with those very writers um she'd rather be with me which right, wound sure. up being a much bigger international record than happy together love did. that one too and uh thank you and then and um and you showed me, and you had a bunch of hits too. Well, yeah, we had uh, we had like four in a row. Um, you know what I mean? And she's my girl, right? And, and from those same writers. And then we were such punks. Uh, we were the only guys recording on our little label, White Whale. We were such dicks. I can't believe it. <laughs> but but they were too. They were too. They were bigger dicks than we were. And we just we wanted to be the Beatles. So when Apple Core came out we said we want that so we kind of uh, illegally started dealing with rca uh, which is not constitutional one can't do that legally um but word got out to the label that we were negotiating with other places when our contract ran out and they got scared and said we'll give you anything you want so we went from a very low percentage artist deal to a very high percentage production deal. And we got our logo on the record, which was blimp because they had Apple. So we uh. had blimp. And uh, as the doors did, uh, they made their whole thing about being a democracy. Nobody wrote a door song. The doors wrote the doors songs. So we figured, all right, let's do that with the Turtles. The Turtles are right. The Turtles songs. Um, we had had a couple of records that hadn't been that big. And uh, before Eleanor came out, we thought the career was on its way out. And then Eleanor gave us like a, another life, an entirely new life in 1968 and nine and into 70 with You Showed Me from the same album. So it was kind of a blessing. And Chip Douglas, our former bass player who had gone on to produce the Monkees, sure. um, uh, came back and, and produced for us. And Jerry Yester, his friend, uh, also from MFQ, produced for us. And it was it was great. The third coming was great. Battle of the Bands was probably ba our best. Battle of the Bands is a pretty ambitious, a pretty ambitious album. Yeah, you try a concept so. album and you know, you guys could have been content to just been knocking out singles, but you tried to do something, something big with Harry Nielsen. Well, it goes to show you kids keep the bar low. 
<laughs> to, to our listeners that don't know, Battle of the Bands was a concept album where you guys basically tried to do a different song in every kind of genre. Correct, sir. And we dressed up as each one of the bands we were oh, yeah. aping. So uh, we had all these incredible pictures, Western costume. We raided Western costume. And we took out everything. We were the bar band, the country and Western yeah. band, the, the psychedelic band. And each one of the songs followed those bands in order. It was the battle of the bands and it ended. Harry Nilsson wrote the opening and closing. It's for great. Us. It was a, an earth anthem was on there. It was a really great record. Choose Tell us about, uh, as we wind down here, uh, uh, Howard, tell, there's, and there's so much stuff in the book. There's so many stories to get to. Uh, I urge people to, to read the book, by the way. T- tell us about uh, Harry Nielsen, who, the guy, guy whose name comes up on this show quite a bit. Oh, I loved, loved Harry Nielsen as a human. Uh, he was the best singer I ever heard in my life. Uh, if you haven't heard the the stuff he did with Gordon Jenkins in in England. Uh, It's the most incredible live recording I've ever heard or seen uh, because there are videos of this album being made and Harry just sits on a stool and sings them one after another and Gordon conducts and it's fucking incredible. Anyway, uh, I've always loved him as a singer. Uh, When we were doing animated films in the 80s, Harry was also working with the same production company, uh, Murakami Wolf, who had done the point, um, so he was sure. hanging out. He was hanging out there all the time, and we daily, because uh, our office was right next door to theirs, would go across the street to this little bar on, on uh, Sunset Boulevard called VJ's. I don't know if it's still there. Real dive, but a piano and a great bar, and we would stay in there. Till closing time, I would come home at 3 a.m. every every day, and my wife would go, "How's Harry?" Well, he's a little down today, you know. We we knew each other since then. Uh, in his latter days, it got very very strange, and uh, those of us who were his friends, uh, I guess, were fortunate enough to have Harry pick us up in his car, as he would often do, and we would drive around, and he would always listen to. His music, it was only his music that played. And in this case, uh, you know, records, would, uh, he'd play like, you know, a touch of Schmilson in the night. And we'd listen to it. And he knew that he couldn't do that anymore because of the screaming contest that right. he had yeah, with we, John Lennon. We talked about it on the show, yeah. Yeah, so he would cry. He would drive and he would cry. He knew he was dying. He wouldn't stop eating and drinking and doing the things that he loved because it was too late. Uh, we would drive around, he would listen to shit and he would go, I, I was a good singer once, wasn't I? I, I Harry, you, you were the best. You're the best, Harry. Nobody ever came close to you. And it was just horrible. It was horrible. Uh, 
but he stayed himself. He stayed himself all the way to the end. And um, one of the sad parts about it is that uh, he, he wanted his legacy to go on and, and outlive him. So he sent his famous bathrobe from the, those album covers and yeah. practically the only thing he ever wore, by the way. He sent it to a gentleman who worked at the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland who had promised him that it would get in. And it hasn't left that guy's closet. I know him. Uh, he's probably going to hear this. Uh, he knows who he is. And uh, I really think that that robe should go someplace where it can be appreciated. And I don't like what you have done to this man's legacy, sir. Wow. Okay. Well, I know there's a there, there's a movement uh, I see in social media to get to get Harry into the in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but that's a whole other conversation and the politics you of know, that. We could go on. But some he, people will never get into the Hall of Fame, and anybody who was ever connected to anyone suspicious will never get into the Hall of Fame. And if you weren't in bed with Ahmet Erdogan, you will never get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. If you weren't, you know, already ripped production or something, you can kiss your future goodbye. And if you were, God forbid, on a mob-related label uh, like we were or like Tommy, Tommy James, James yeah. was on Roulette, that guy, Morris Levy, you know, that's a book unto itself. And I'm sure there are many books about that, but uh, uh, not Tommy's necessarily. But, you know, yeah, it's... It's a scary thing out there. There are no independents. You can think there are. You can think that the world has changed and the Internet has made things different. But the same four assholes run this business that have run it for the last 50 years. And you can't get away. The minute your little indie label gets a star, they buy you out, you're corporate, and then you're on The Voice. So those are your, your steps to start. This is an education. Well, it's an education for me too, you know, having lived through it and gone through it and seen the pop side of it uh, from AM and FM and being on radio for 40 years and doing all the shit that we have done in our lives. It's kind of like, okay, I can be objective about this because I don't give a fuck. There, there are some great stories in the book, things we're not going to get to here because we run out of time. I mean, the, the fire in, in Montreal, the, the Ooh, zap, Montreau, Switzerland, all, yeah. yeah uh, Montreux, I'm sorry. Uh, this is so, there's so much in the book. Uh, but at least t- tell us the, uh, and, and, and Gilbert was fascinated by this, tell us the White House story real quick. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you got invited to sing at Nixon's White House. <laughs> well, you know... It was still a teenage thing because Trisha Nixon, Trisha Nixon, <laughs> Trisha, it was Trisha Nixon's coming out party. She was turning 16 years old. Um, it was her birthday. Uh, they asked her who she wanted to perform at the White House, and she said the Turtles, her favorite group. You Showed Me was her favorite record. Uh, this was right after that came out. Uh, so we're talking about like 19... 19- 70 here, the start of 1970. It was the Nixon White House. He was not there that night, fortunately. Um, but nothing would have changed had he showed up. It wouldn't have been any different. We came in the afternoon to set up and do a sound check. And the Secret Service was there at the gate to go through the equipment, make sure we weren't sneaking guns in or anything bizarre. So they go through our stuff. 
Now they start going to the drum case, the trap case. That's where all the sticks are and everything else. And they come upon uh, this little black box, which happens to be a, a tuning fork and a metronome. Just a little cheap $20 guitar center thing. And they hit the button on it. They don't know what it is. And it starts ticking. Tick, tick, tick. It's a fucking metronome. Of course it's going to tick. So now every gun is drawn <laughs> down on the ground. We're down on the ground, hands behind your head, hands behind our heads. It's like, what the hell, man? It's not like you found our stash. You didn't, fortunately. You know, so what's going on? You know, the metronome thing. Now the guys are looking at the metronome. They got hazmat suits on or vests or some kind of crap to cover up there and they're looking at what the thing is they call in all these other units they're examining the box we're yelling it's a metronome it's a metronome now they start hitting the buttons to see what they do if i were in their shoes i would don't think i would have started hitting buttons on a machine i didn't know what it was you know that could have been a they're hitting buttons they're hitting buttons well it's got a tuning fork built into it which produces a 440 hertz A to tune to. And you tune to it, and then you tune your guitar, you tune to it. Uh, but tick, 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 and then, well, that wasn't good. Now the guns are cocked. Oh, We're man. yelling, it's a metronome. It's a fucking metronome. <laughs> so they take the thing, two guys, two guys have to handle this thing. They take it over to the lawn and they, they start stomping on it, stomping on it, you know, and just and whacking it with their rifle butts and just wiping it out, wiping it out. And then the guy comes back. We're scared shitless. The guy comes back like 17 minutes later and goes, it's a metronome. Yeah. It's a metronome. Okay, you guys are good to go. So uh, uh, we were good to go. We were covered in sweat, and we thought we were dead and shit in our pants. Other than that, it was great. We played the White House. We were so high, um, incredibly high. Uh, our road manager at the time was holding all of the stash, and on the way out of the room, he said, hey, want a bump? Yeah. We didn't think that it would be like, cameras in the lincoln library that would be stupid and in fact there weren't cameras in the lincoln library until after the watergate bullshit so and you know statute of limitations can't get me now motherfuckers so i feel good about it and we were high as hell mark fell off the stage yeah. four times <laughs> didn't he hit on lbj's daughter too <laughs> and she had just married that Pat, whatever his name is, and, and he was none too happy about it. And I thought they were going to get into a fight uh, right there on the floor, right there on the floor. He tried to pick her up in front of her newly married husband, who was, I thought that this is it, but it wasn't. Uh, and they took pictures and we wound up on the cover of Parade magazine. <laughs> which is real status. Yeah. And, uh, and that was it. But, but it, it brought us to a different social strata and our price went up. So, uh, and you can't refuse. I learned it's like the queen, you know, you can't refuse an invitation to the fucking white house. You just don't do it as an American, no matter who's in office. Okay. We'll do it. We hate you. We hate your war, but 
the White House is the White House. Yeah. Good story. What do you yeah, got, thanks. Gil? Okay. Well, there, there's one thing my audience is waiting for. And if you'd like to join me. Gird your loins, Howard. <laughs> uh, I'm welcome. holding my balls. I'm holding them tight. <laughs> Here it comes. Sing with me. Imagine me and you. I do. I think about you every night. It's only right to think about the girl you love and hold her tight. Invest the time, and you say you belong to me, and ease my mind. Imagine how the world could be so very fine, so happy together. They tossed the dice It had to be The only one for me Is you and you for me So happy together Can't see me loving nobody But you for all my life When you're near me Baby, the And you and me, no matter how they toss the dice, it had to be. The only one for me is you, and you for me, so happy together. Thank you. I'm your biggest fan. Howard, this has been an absolute treat. And Thank what you, what do you got coming up? You guys are still you're still touring. You're doing Here's the- what I do. I tour June, July, and August, and then I hang up my rock and roll shoes. I won't be out there again until next June, July, and August to do it all again. 
And that's all I need to do at this stage of my life. Everything is paid for, and it's fucking great. Well, and you're you're out with Gary Puckett and Mark Lindsay and the Cow Sills and and uh, Chuck Negron and, and yeah, the lineup of everybody. changes every year. Uh, you know, we're adding people, we're taking people away. We got the association this year. We got the Archies this year. Oh, Ron Dante's going Ron out with you. Ron is the best man. If, he, if people don't know who that guy is from the Archies or the Cufflinks or the fact he produced seven oh, Neil yeah. Diamond albums. The old Diamond albums, Barry Manilow, Barry Manilow. albums, yeah. including yeah. I write the songs and Mandy, and he's getting up there and singing, you know, his idiot Archie's songs. You know, it proves a couple of things: a, we're not doing this for the money, and b, it still feels good to get out there and feel an instantaneous audience reaction. And if that guy can do it, and he's got more money than God himself, then. I can do it too, you know, and yeah, 70, it's kind of old, but then you see what happened at old Chella this past weekend and, and people come out to see it. And when you bring the show to them in Davenport, Iowa, it's not like they can get to Indio, California. This is their festival and we are their guys. And we understand that this is probably the first and only time they're ever going to see us. And we want them to remember us. So we give it 110. And and you're going to be in New York or we East Coast will next indeed. summer? We'll be back at the Beacon. You can bet on it. Oh, good. Steely Dan's there now. We'll come see you at the Beacon. We, we follow and, them and I, everywhere. <laughs> I got to plug your book yes. again, and it is shell-shocked. My Life with the Turtles, Flo and Eddie, and Frank Zappa, etc. Howard Kalin with Jeff Tamarkin. The book's great. There's stories about uh, Nielsen and David Bowie and Keith Moon and uh, obviously Frank Zappa, Alice Cooper, John Belushi. It goes on. You work with Robert Ridgely, somebody we talked about on this podcast. Wow. I love him. He was terrific. He 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 was was great. Incredible. You work. And and the foreword is from our pal Pendulette. Pendulette. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, there's an audiobook version at Audiophile, and Penn actually reads his introduction, and I read the book. Oh, got to get wow. that. Yeah, it's great. Anything any, anything else to plug, Howard, before we let you go? This has been Absolutely. great. Absolutely. Well, you know what? There are two new Turtle releases. One of them are all our albums collected in a box uh, with the original covers. And the other record is all the A and B sides we ever released. That's a different album. That They both came out on the same day, and they're both available now anywhere you go and certainly Amazon. Wow. This Terrific. has been Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre. We once again recorded at Nutmeg with our engineer, Frank Verderosa. And we've been talking to the very, very talented and entertaining Howard Kaler. Thank you, Gilbert. Love Frank. you, man. I love you, Thank too. You, Frank. Thank, Thank you, Howard. You, Frank. My pleasure, buddy. Thank you for doing this for us. We'll see My you soon. Pleasure. Thanks. Bye-bye, guys.